This morning's message to be John 12 this morning, and we'll title it afterwards. We'll find out that there's an interesting paradox in the Scripture. There's something that is really quite remarkable, actually. The Jews had a problem with Jesus. Their conception of what He was going to do and what He did were different things. And their solution for that was to kill Him, which ultimately worked into God's plan. But ironically, the thing that they were upset about was He was talking about dying. Isn't that funny? We're upset you're talking about dying, so... We're going to kill you? Isn't that funny how that works? There is a synchronization in the Scripture that occurs, though. These beautiful stories that have been written from ages past that all converge on one moment in history that we call the fullness of time. And you can see that happening this week. Because in John 12, the first words of it say, now it's six days before Passover. Passover had been occurring for years and years and years, 1,600 years before Jesus. And it was an event that they all looked forward to. And it was one of the times when all Jews everywhere, all over the world, went up to Jerusalem. And on the way, they sang the great Hillel, right? Which we were talking about earlier. If you were walking along singing these psalms constantly, and you did this every year, and you did it three times a year, they might get in you, huh? Can anybody remember words to songs that you hear on the radio? Of course. Lyrics have a way of grabbing you, don't they? Even some lyrics you don't want. I heard that Coca-Cola commercial, put the lime in the coke. I've been singing it for weeks, you know, put the lime in the coconut, put them both together, you know, and it's silliness. Now, what if God had given you specific songs that he wrote for you so that you would learn about him and you sang them in mass? I mean, hundreds of thousands of Jews traveling the roads up to Jerusalem singing together. I was in Israel on uh, Jerusalem Day when they were uh, celebrating this, this year uh, their anniversary of taking back Jerusalem. And I, it was the neatest thing. I've never been in such a large crowd where there was no drunkenness, there was no fighting. There was not, I mean, it was amazing. Jews everywhere, all crammed together right at the Wailing Wall, and they're singing in heaven. They're singing in Hebrew, so I didn't know what they were singing. Now I know. The hello. Okay. Y'all with me in John 12? Verse 1. If I don't come back to it, and I know I will, y'all remind me, Hillel is important to this message. Okay? So uh, we're in John 12, verse 1. So six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived in Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Y'all remember in John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He intentionally waited, did not go to Lazarus, so that Lazarus, who was sick, would actually perish, so that he would have the opportunity to raise him from the dead in front of all of his friends. God sometimes is willing to let you endure a difficult situation so that when he delivers you from it, it's a testimony to everybody around you. And as Christians, we need to learn to look at difficult situations in that light. Wow! This is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. I didn't get my paycheck today. I could grumble. I could be upset. I could be worried about everything that's going to happen. Or I could say, look... God is going to come through for me. That was what he was teaching. So now we're in the town where that took place. By the way, I did get my paycheck. I want you all to know that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <We're laughs> Small church, you know. <laughs> Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. I don't want to get off too far on this, but sometimes in the Bible when you're reading and you look at different accounts, the chronologies look at first glance slightly different. This is given skeptics canon fodder. Because this event looks in the other Gospels like it takes place somewhere two or three days before the crucifixion, where it looks at first glance as if John is placing this six days before. Because he said six days before the Passover, uh, they arrived in Bethany. They arrived in Bethany six days before, but we don't know when this dinner took place. Does that make sense? Sometimes we need to be careful not to make the Bible say things that it doesn't. Uh, that also already encourages you. If you read something and you think, my God, what does that mean? Give it some time. God will make it clear to you. Rarely is the problem ever that the Bible says something horrible or wrong. It's that we just don't have the proper understanding. But the light of God's revelation will bring it to you. Okay, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. Not a very nice name for expensive perfume, is it? Nard? I'm assuming in Hebrew that's something beautiful, you know? 
she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We covered a lot of this Wednesday, so I want to be careful not to dig up too much of Wednesday's teaching. But I just want to remind you, Mary had never really embraced Jesus in a way that lets you know for sure she was born again. In fact, there are some things that might even indicate that she thought Jesus was a cool guy, but was just standing on the outer fringes, wondering what to think about him. What really brought a change in her life? What do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt impacted her so that she's there wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, treating him like who he really was, and pouring out the most expensive, precious thing that she had at his feet? She saw her brother raised from the dead. I want to encourage you, when you're waiting for loved ones, when you're waiting for husbands or sons or aunts or uncles to get born again, the most powerful thing that can happen in their life it's for them to see your life change from something that stinks and reeks of death to something that is alive and full of joy. So often we think of Christianity as something that is a list of do's and don'ts. And they'll we're a Christian because we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't... And by the way, a lot of those we don'ts, we do in this church, okay? But we, we think that's being a Christian. No, it's when they see real life and joy in you. In fact, it's so confusing that... Sometimes people mistake it. They don't understand. That can't be Christianity. I mean, that guy laughs and cuts up all of the time. Christianity is something that is stiff and religious and collared and all of those things. Not so. Not in the Bible. You see Jesus leap for joy at times. You see that these people were people like us. This was not some staunch ceremony to them. It was their lives. Well, when she saw her brother raised from the dead, it brought the kind of change in her that she took this perfume that was worth a year's wages. Now, I don't know how much money anybody makes in here, and it's not important, but let's, for argument's sake, say that a year's wages is... Well, for David, it's like $200,000. No, I'm kidding. Let's, let's just say it's $30,000. Can you imagine pouring out something worth $30,000 on someone's feet? Now, it's going to roll right off their feet into the dirt. I mean, it's going to go away. It's not about the value of that, it's about that act of devotion. That really showed love for him, huh? Watch what he says. A religious guy there, Judas, says, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold in the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. response, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus' basic response is there's always going to be problems in the world. And money doesn't fix all of those problems. By the way, this is a good verse for the prosperity gospel, by the way. You will always have the poor with you. But in any case, she did something beautiful for him. Was Jesus really interested in money? I mean, he's going to teach a parable in just a little while that says that a widow who put a mite, something similar to a a penny, in the offering put more than all of the rich people who put in uh, many times more than that because that was all she had. That was her heart. She's pouring out everything for him. He doesn't care that this is a year's wages. He cares that this is something beautiful that she did, something sacred to her. In fact, the other Gospels declared that this act would be told everywhere that the Gospel was shared. Isn't that interesting? And John refers to it that way. He referred to it in John 11 before he even told the story. When he interviewed Mary, he said, this is the same Mary who poured oil on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair because the story had gone out already by the time he wrote this. Isn't that neat? Have you ever wondered... Uh, particularly Protestants sometimes, uh, seem to be speaking of Mother Mary in a bad way. Like, because some, uh, some of Catholicism in Protestant minds seems to lift Mary up too high, it sounds like Protestants are speaking negatively about Mary. You know where the balance is in those things? The Scripture says, all generations will call me blessed. That's what Mary said. All generations will call me blessed. It's the same way that this Mary... Everywhere the gospel was told, this beautiful thing she did would be done. It means that her servanthood, what she did for the Lord, was a beautiful thing. And you're to think of her that way. 
Does that make sense? That's the proper view. Okay. As we move on from there, it says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of the Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Whom he raised from the dead. People will come to Jesus because, in our lives, because His Spirit is there drawing them. We have an innate interest in God. But that's not the only reason. In fact, if that's all there is, then God wouldn't need us. But when He saved you, He appointed you to work in a harvest. They came because of Jesus, the reports they heard, and because they wanted to see His work displayed in somebody's life. That ought to encourage you. You ought to think that your service to God, your role in the kingdom, is to be somebody like Lazarus who was called out of death, took off his grave clothes, and is walking in life so that others would see how great God is. Have you ever thought about this? You know, the thing that looked like a disaster in your life, whatever it was, whether it was a divorce or a child born that was a surprise or... Whatever it was, maybe a foreclosure or a bankruptcy or whatever horrible thing. You say, oh my God, how could this happen and why would God let it happen? The fact that you're here today, the fact that God has sustained you and that there's joy in your life and that you've overcome it is a testament not to how great you are, but to how great God is and others see it. And you know who would see it most of all? Those closest to you. Those that are familiar with it. They'll look and go... If that had happened to anybody else I know, they'd be crushed. And look, Matthew's still here. Wow, what is it? I've always thought I was a Christian, but there's something different about him. You know, and that's what God intended. And you can see this. Watch what the Scripture says about this. In verse 10, they had come to see uh, Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. In verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him... Many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in Him. We'll cover the chief priest in a minute. But it's not on account of Jesus, the great things that He said. Not on account of they liked Jesus, thought He was a great guy. It was on account of what they saw happen in Lazarus' life. Friends, that's worth noting. You are a powerful instrument for God. Or at least you can be. Jesus said that He desired people who would advance His kingdom. 30, 60, and 100 fold is what He expects back from you. If He did one in your life, He wants at least 30 from you. You are soldiers in the kingdom of God. Yeah, I know that. That's an astounding rate of return, isn't it? If you did one, He wants at least 30. If you did 10, what's that mean? You know, that's why this is, uh, the Bible's always spoken exponential multiplication. One chases a thousand. So you would think two, two would chase 2,000, right? Now the Psalms say one will chase 1,000 and two, 10,000. Well, what does that mean if there's three? I mean, God says that He will sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind. In other words, the little bit that you contribute to God, He can do amazing things with. Isn't that neat? Okay, so our message this morning is really about... Hey, good morning. Our message this morning is really about the fact that many Jews are going to put their faith in Jesus and we're beginning the last week of Jesus' life. Many Jews are going over to put their faith in Jesus, but there's going to be a problem. They had certain expectations of the Messiah. In fact, we're going to find out that their expectations for the Messiah have caused major events in world history. Some of their expectations were shaped right out of John 1. I taught on this. It's on the Internet for you to download if you hadn't heard it. It was in John 1, verse 19 through 25. And it was about the Jewish expectation for Messiah. Do you remember what they were waiting for? They were waiting for a prophet. They were waiting for Elijah. Or they were waiting for the Christ. They were arguing whether this was a priest, prophet, or a king. David is a good example in the Bible of how ambiguous this can be. David was a king. Would you all agree? But you see him wear a priestly garment sometimes and go into the temple, don't you? And those songs we were talking about, the Psalms, the Hallel, who wrote them? David. And they were prophecies about Jesus. So was he a prophet? Well, kind of. Was he a priest? Kind of. Was he a king? Most definitely. So which classification do you put him in? Well, I don't know. Jesus is kind of like that. 
His ministry touches many regards. So when you're reading about something that was forecasted into the future, some would zero in and say, oh, this guy's going to be a prophet. Others say, no, no, he's going to be a king. And still another would say, no, he's going to be like Elijah. And you might all be right, but not have the whole picture. They had expectations. And a Syrian general came in and had really oppressed Israel prior to Jesus' day. And the Syrian general sacrificed a pig on the altar and desecrated the Jewish temple. And God raised up a hero. And uh, his name was Judas Maccabeus. And he was a type of a Messiah to them. He came in and he fought the Romans, or the Syrians. He drove them out. He pushed Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of the Antichrist, out. This shaped Jewish thought about what a Messiah would do. They read the Scriptures in light of that. They read the Scriptures about this King who was to come, the King of the Jews, and they thought about Him in this regard. A warrior King. A King who's going to show up and do for us what Judas Maccabeus did. Does that make sense? That's what they were waiting for. It's what they were hoping for. This is not a lot different than today. We have certain desires about what we would like to see God do. You heard them from your parents. You heard them in Sunday school. We're influenced by them on what we see in TV and the culture around us and the latest books written on prophecy. What people have said. It may or may not be what the Bible actually says. And we need to be very careful to conform our thought to the Scripture and not the Scripture to our thought. Because these people had a unique advantage. You know, Paul said there was an advantage in being a Jew. An advantage in every way because theirs were the patriarchs. Theirs was the written Word. Theirs was the culture that the Gospel was birthed out of. A lot of what we discuss in this church has to do with our departure from Jewish culture and what a handicap it is. Because what I want you to remember is we go Their expectations were a little off. And they had in their culture every hint Every advantage, and they still missed it. So what does that mean about the church today if you don't have the cultural witness? If you don't have those uh, advantages that come from heritage? You might be more likely to miss it, right? Okay, so here, what we want to do is we want to read about the triumphal entry. Now, John is different than most books in the Gospel. Most of the Gospels, three-quarters of the message has to do with uh, Jesus' three years of ministry. And the last few chapters have to do with the last week of his life. John is totally different. We're in the 12th chapter, and from here to the end of the book of John, it's all about the last seven or eight days of Jesus' ministry. John had special emphasis on what Jesus did. This is the week in which he entered into Jerusalem. This would be the 10th of Nisan. While he's doing this, by the way, People have selected a Passover lamb, put it in their house, and are examining it. Because four days from now, four days from this entry day, they're going to kill this lamb to symbolize God's death angel passing over and them receiving life. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now tell me something. What does Hosanna mean? Lord, save us! Save us now! It's a term of expectation. I mean, you don't... This was not a Hosanna. This was a Hosanna! I mean, a desperate cry. What did they want to be saved from? That's really the question. Most Jews wanted to be saved from Roman occupation. That was not really their problem, but that's what they wanted to be saved from. I'm curious though, why do you think they cried Hosanna? Why do you think they said, blessed is the king of Israel? They had just traveled up, right? This is the 10th of Nisan. They're all on their way for the beginning of the Passover week. They just ascended to Jerusalem. And what do Jews sing on their way to Jerusalem? The great Hallel. It's interesting to note that these are direct quotes from that psalm. These are direct quotes from those psalms. We'll get back to that in a minute. In other words, what they had been taught about God, what had been ingrained in their culture, what they had been seeing since they were children, they were seeing fulfilled. So you would think they would get it, right? 
Well, many did. Many believed. Remember, we've seen now in four occasions in the book of John, it says many put their faith in Him. We'll get to the Hillel in a minute, but y'all keep that thought in your mind. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Anybody got a footnote? Where's that come from? It's Zechariah. Zechariah 9. Now, if you had grown up learning these scriptures, and you can turn to Zechariah 9. From Matthew, you just hang a left. It's easy, easy to find. One of the last books in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9 in the Thompson Chain will be page, on page 1057. If you had grown up singing songs about the great Hillel, learning these Scriptures, and you're saying, wow, blessed are you, you're a king, man. You're the king of Israel because that's what you grew up hearing. That was the Scripture that God had ingrained in you through song and lyric. And then you saw Jesus seated on a colt. Might you think of Zechariah? Look what it says here. Zechariah 9.9 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion's another word for Jerusalem that means mountain of the Lord's brightness. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Salvation from what, though? What did you need to be saved from? Well, I believe they needed to be saved from death, just like every other man. But if you were under the thumb of Roman oppression, you might think you needed to be saved from the Romans. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away chariots Ephraim, that's northern Israel, and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. What are you hearing if you are under occupation of Rome? Boy, we're going to have a king. He's going to come in on a donkey and he's going to take away the bow. He's going to take away the chariot. What are you hearing? Liberation, man. Liberation from the occupier. That's what you're hearing in this Scripture, aren't you? He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Now, we're looking in the rearview mirror. We can see the blood of Jesus' covenant freeing people from death. They didn't have the benefit of the rearview mirror. I'm sure they didn't know what that meant. And they probably interpreted it as something out of the Levitical law. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. What do you hear that the apostles were waiting for all of the time? The restoration of the kingdom to Israel. In fact, when they went out preaching, they preached the kingdom of God is at hand. They were waiting for God to restore Israel as chief among the nations. And now... They're singing the songs about blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing the Hallel. They've been doing it for 1,600 years. And they're excited and they look up and they see Jesus on a donkey and they remember Zechariah 9. They're thinking, wow, now's going to be the time we'll be liberated from the Romans. Just like Judas Maccabeus liberated us from the Syrian general. They're thinking, now will be the time that it will all happen. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion. Who are the sons of Zion? Don't spiritualize this. If you're a Jew, who are the sons of Zion? Jews. I will rouse your sons, O Zion. Talking about Jews. Against your sons, O Greece. In Jewish thought, the world outside of Israel was Greek. So what would you think this means? It's time for us to rise up and fight against everybody who's not Jewish. Our king's coming on a donkey. His rule's going to extend out over the nations. It will be time for us to be restored the fortunes that we had in the days of Solomon, in the days of David. Could you see how you could think that? It's not all that far off base, is it? In fact, the only reason you know that that's not the correct way to read it is because it didn't happen. Boy, how fortunate we are that others have gone before us and borne a great burden, huh? In fact, you might say that we Gentiles owe a great debt to those Jews who have served us in this way by their lives. Every father, every mother, hopes that the mistakes that they made in their life benefit their children in some way. That they'll look back and see, Dad did that, Mom did that, and so I don't have to do that, right? We owe that kind of debt to the Jewish people because the mistakes they made as a nation have benefited us. The whole chapter of 11 of Romans is about that. Have they stumbled beyond recovery, he says? 
now. But for a little while, they've been hardened so that you Gentiles can come in. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then he goes on to talk about the Lord appearing over them and them shining like the brightness of the heavens. And you know what? He describes what we now know is a second coming. He describes glorified bodies and sparkling things and awesome signs in the heavens. Right after that in Zechariah, they were waiting for that. They were hoping to see it. You remember Wednesday, we covered the promise in a video. And you remember that uh, the mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Golick, and some other important people, Benjamin Netanyahu, mentioned on the video. They said, ah, well, the way we view this with Christians is, when the Messiah comes, because Christians and Jews both believe that the Messiah will come, and when He comes, we will simply go out and ask Him, is this your first trip or your second? If it is your second trip, then all the Jews will become Christians. If it is the first trip, you Christians will consider being Jews. A very political answer, right? But if you think about this, we would be in the exact same boat they were if you didn't have the benefit of history to look back and see these things didn't occur. So we know they must still be out there to occur. They're waiting for it a first time. We believe that it is really a second coming of the Messiah. Not all that far apart, huh? In fact, there's an inherent relationship that I've described many times like a tether between the two religions because Christianity is supposed to be an extension of Judaism. But something's happened to us. Young, turn back to John. I've often talked about the role of the Roman church in separating Christianity from the Jewishness, from the Hebraic roots. But what I've not often told you is that the Jewish nation played their part in it too. See, because I love Israel the way that I do, I like to lump everything upon the Latins. And I sometimes don't emphasize that the Jews had a role in this too. And I don't want to give you too long of a history lesson because I have a lot to preach. But there was a Jewish son. And, well, let me start here. After Jesus, after Jesus, a Roman general named Titus comes in and he levels the temple. And this is destroying the hopes of the Jewish people. Their place of worship is gone. They're thinking, where is our Messiah? You know, Judaism is in a state of flux in that now within Judaism, there's Essenes who don't want anything to do with Pharisees and Sadducees, have separated themselves and are obsessed with cleansing. There are Pharisees who believe in a physical resurrection and spiritual things, angels. There are Sadducees who have departed from that. Their interest in God is basically political. There are Zealots whose only interest in God is political. And now there's this new Jewish sect called Followers of the Way where these fired up Jews like Paul who they call Shaul, uh, are preaching about Jesus being the Messiah. And they're basically living together. They're living together in one big Jewish community. But some things happen. The Romans come in and destroy the temple, which is the center of the Jews' life. So this causes some fragmentation and them to be spread out. And a Messiah of sorts, a religious figure, rises in 132. This presents a real Real problem. If you were a Jew and all of your brothers and sisters, if your mother and father, in fact, many of you Christians in here have had this very same scenario happen in a spiritual sense. You've been raised in the denomination and your eyes got open at some point and you started to see it's not all right. But if I depart from this denomination, mother and father won't like it. Aunts, uncles will think badly of me. And you were torn there. Do I do what Jesus tells me to do? Or am I concerned with the pressures from my family? Well, what was happening within the Jewish family in 132 is a man raised up that the uh, synagogues began to point to as the Messiah. His name was Bar Kokhba. Easy name to remember. I probably can't spell it for you. <laughs> Bar Kokhba. And some of the Jewish leaders said, He's the Messiah. Do you know why? He wanted to fight the Romans. He was ready to lead a revolt, a rebellion what they believed God was going to do. Now, if you were a Jew who had accepted Jesus, though, and you're there, and your Jewish brothers and sisters are saying, He's the Messiah here to fight the Romans, you're left with an interesting choice. You either side with Bar Kokhba, declaring Him to be the Messiah, which would reject Jesus, or you side with who? The Romans, who are against your Jewish brothers. 
So all of the sudden, this sect of Judaism is isolated all by itself. The Romans hate them because they're Jews. The other Jews hate them because they're considered traitors. And so the divide begins to grow. Christianity from this point on really ceases to be Jewish. We start seeing all kind of ideas them, like deicide, which is the Jews killed God. No, the Jews never killed God. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? That set us on a divergent path, which divorced us from our roots. It was like mother and father split up and now the kids don't have the influences they're supposed to have. And the church began to get all kind of weird ideas. And we are a product of that today. That's why when you look at Christianity today, you see something so far removed from what was going on in the New Testament. Meeting in home to home. Miracles abounding. Very Jewish roots. Now, were you all surprised in that movie that I showed that many of the Jews had no idea that Jesus was Jewish? Educated people had no idea Jesus was Jewish. Well, why not? Because this church that he's supposed to be the head of doesn't look anything like Judaism. Friends, it was not that way in the beginning. I think it's rather interesting that it was their desire for a conquering Messiah that helped to cause that, as well as sinful Greek men. It's going to be the return of that kind of Messiah that causes us to need to look at the Jewish roots to understand end times event and will cause a reunion. Mom and Dad will get married again. Okay, y'all still with me? No, y'all are thoroughly confused, aren't you? Sorry, I'm telling you everything that I've learned in my entire life in 40 minutes. <laughs> Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming. Seek on a donkey. Donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. In other words, the disciples are sitting there not understanding the significance of the events. Isn't that interesting? How often do you pass through life having no idea that when God did something, the first day you met Matthew, first day I met Matthew, first day you encountered somebody, that that would be a life-changing event? You know, the disciples were no different than us, but they could look back and go, wow, it was that day that Diana and Eric were sitting around a coffee pot. There was a strategic changing in their lives. It was that day. We can always look in the rearview mirror and see God at work. The real trick in a Christian's life is to know that He's at work without having to look backwards. Being able to see it in the future, although you don't see it. That's what faith is. Now the crowd that was with Him when He called Lazarus from the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that He had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet Him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone out after Him. They're envious, and that's true. And we often emphasize how wicked they are. But let me ask you something. If you were in first century Israel, and you were waiting for the kind of Messiah that was coming to overthrow the Romans, and all you heard was that this Messiah was talking about dying, might you be a little confused? Might you be a little upset that the masses seem to be go-following? After him? How upset did your family members get? How upset do people that love the Lord but worship differently than we do here get upset the first time they heard you went to a church like this? You know? And if your family's very understanding, that's great. But I, what I'm trying to say is when people think you're on the wrong road, they're, because they love you, they're willing to try to exert some influence to get you back. That's why the Pharisees are always looking at the crowd saying, they're blind fools! They don't know anything! Because they felt like they had all the answers and the crowd was wrong. This would give you a different impression of Israel too. See, it was the leadership who felt like they had a responsibility to keep the people from uh, receiving a lie and who wanted to protect their, their place, their station in life. But the people were inclined to follow Jesus. I bet you thought most of your life you've had the impression that the Jewish nation as a whole didn't like Jesus. Not so. I've showed you four times in John where many were putting their faith in Him. This trial only took place in one evening in the middle of the night. I assure you, all Israel was not there to condemn Jesus. The leadership was. We're going to cover that in the Hallel's too in just a minute. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. What kind of Greeks would go worship at a feast? Proselytes. They were Greek Jews. Okay? That's interesting. So we have 
the nation of Israel putting their faith in him, and that many of the common people did. We have the priesthood, who's not really doing it, but some God-fearing Gentiles who are, right? Three classifications of people, okay? You'll keep that in your mind. We'll read it in just a minute. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. <laughs> That's my request, too. Uh, Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You don't have to be super bright to know what that means. You just have to look at it honestly. You plant one seed, you get more than that from the ground, right? But it's necessary for one seed to get buried for that to happen. What's Jesus saying? And right now, I'm one dynamic leader called to reflect God. But if I'm planted in the ground like a kernel, I'm going to bear fruit just like me. There'll be many. You understand? That's you and I. That's what we're supposed to be. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Boy, what a paradox, huh? We say salvation's free, but the reality is it costs you your very life, doesn't it? Bobby, Steve, Dave, Brad, all of you have to decide the things that I want to do, the life that I have planned for myself, I'm going to set aside. Otherwise, I really lose life. But if I'll set it aside, God will give me an eternal life, something abundant and full and powerful. Those of us that have done that, you find out the life He had planned for you was better than what you planned anyway. I was going to be a social studies teacher and a football coach. Can you all imagine me? I'd be even fatter. I'd have those nasty coaches' shorts on, you know, be waddling around with coffee talking about history, you know. <laughs> I think Jennifer's happy we chose this life. Still fat, but I'm not wearing coaches' shorts. <laughs> the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. Where was he? He's standing there, he's standing there in Israel. People have taken this scripture to talk about a rapture. That, that uh, he, he's gone off to heaven and he's taken people to be with him in heaven. He was standing in Israel when he said it. Where I am, my servants will also be. But while he was standing there in Israel, he was also in perfect communion with God. The perfect presence of God. What Jesus' ministry was, was to reveal the Father to you. To allow you to interact with God. And what He's saying is, when I do this, when like a colonel die, and then raise up others just like myself, just like me, you'll be able to walk around in the presence of God. That's what He was teaching. It escapes most of us today. I don't mean in practice, I mean in understanding. That escapes most people. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now I've been talking a lot about the Hillel, right? I keep kind of baiting you, hoping that you'll begin to think about the Hillel. I told you that there were three classifications of people in Israel. There was the general nation at large. There was the priesthood. And then there were all those that fear God, right? You remember that? I told you that they were seen. Uh, on the way up to the Passover every year for 1,600 years, and that the things that they said to him at the triumphal entry were things they were singing. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, and Hosanna, and all of these things. Remember that Jesus also said, what, will I back away from these vows? No, this is the reason that I came into this world. Now watch this next thing. He says, Father, glorify Your name, right? Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They were confused. 
They were confused because their conception of a Messiah was a king who came in and overthrew the Romans and endured forever. They were upset. They're asking him, you look like the guy, but you're not talking about doing what we expected. Jesus responded to all of that with, what, am I going to back away from my vows? No, I'm going to glorify the Father. And a voice from heaven spoke about that. Well, that's very interesting. I wonder why Jesus responded like that. Y'all turn with me to Psalm 118. The song they were singing on the way up to Jerusalem. The great Hillel actually starts in 115. 115 verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be glory. Because of your love and your faithfulness. Remember Jesus said, glorify your name. And what did the Father speak and say? I have and I will again. The people had all just sung that on their way to Jerusalem. You remember Jesus was talking about dying? Talking about dying and they were confused? The people had been singing Psalm 115, 16, 17, 18. They had been singing that on the way to Jerusalem. Look at Psalm 115, verse 17. Verse 16. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth He has given to man. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Look at 116, verse 3. I'm just going to show you how many times he mentions death in his songs. The cords of death entangled me, and the anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. What did Hosanna mean? O Lord, save me. Save me now. Under what circumstances did the song say they would cry out Hosanna? Save me from death. The cords of death were entangling me. Look at Psalm 116, verse 8. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death. You, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death. Look at 116, verse 15. Actually, verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. What did Jesus say? Shall I back away from this hour? No, it was for this reason that I came into the world. What was the reason? Look at verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. They were singing these songs on their way in. But when Jesus talked about doing what was in the songs, they were confused. Because they had only grabbed on to the parts they had liked. Turn with me to Psalm 118. Let's read the Hillel here. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Did you know when you sang that song this morning that that was written a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth? Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. People in Israel were going, putting their faith in Jesus, were they not? Yes, they were. Was the house of Aaron putting their faith in Jesus? No. But what was the next classification of people? Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. See, God had unveiled even in their songs, this is in Psalm 116 too, that there would be three incomings, three people groups within Israel that would get saved. The nations say His love endures forever. That's all the common people. And they were putting their faith in Him. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. But there we have a stagnant group. People who don't understand and won't come. The religious people. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. That's you and me. Guys, you know why the Bible says that you and I had a chance at salvation? The house of Aaron didn't take it. The Bible teaches that Israel was hardened in part. They experienced a time period where they stumbled in the plan of God so that you would have a chance to get saved. That's what the Bible teaches. They sang about it in their songs. Let the nation say. Let the priesthood say. And let the Gentiles, those who fear the Lord, say. If they hadn't stumbled, you wouldn't have the opportunity. But because they stumbled, we have an opportunity. Now, here's what's unique. We've been so far off course now. 
whether it was because of Constantine's edict of toleration that Romanized Christianity, or whether it was the Bar Kokhba rebellion that caused Judaism to separate from Christianity, that we are in desperate need of something. We don't have this culture anymore where three times a year we're going to Israel singing the songs about God's plan, singing about His future. We don't have the culture that when you look around, you see displayed in your life the attributes of God. They still do. What is so funny is that they stumbled and it benefited us and now we need them to walk well so that we'll understand the Scripture. I believe that in the last days there's going to be a revival in Judaism that will allow the Gentile church to reform itself and return to its Hebraic roots so that we have a a proper understanding again. Let's read the rest of this psalm. In my anguish I cried to the Lord and He answered me by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Can you see Jesus saying that? The Lord's with me. I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? He knew they were going to kill Him. But was He going to back away from His vow? No, this very psalm says it's precious in the Lord's sight that a saint would die. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Isn't that what Jesus has been telling the crowds? You do what you heard from your father. I do what I've heard from mine. I'll trust in His Word because He's reliable. Hadn't He said that four or five times in the book of John? All the nations surrounded me. Now, verses 10 through uh, 12 are a bit confusing because they seem to occur at the second coming. In fact, pick up in 13. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live. Can you imagine? They say that every year. Now the guy that they think is their king is talking about being planted in the ground like a kernel and then rising to produce a crop. And they've been singing about this every year. Seven times in these three psalms, talks about the cords of death entangling someone and then being rescued by God. But they missed it, even though it was in their culture. What chance do you think that we have to get it right when we're talking about His second coming if we don't understand the culture at all? The culture that it was given them, that it was intended to be portrayed in. I will not die but live and will proclaim in what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. That's interesting about John 10, where Jesus proclaimed Himself to be the gate. wonder why I thought they should understand Him. Through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. This scripture that I'm fixing to quote here is quoted in Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, Acts 4, and 1 Peter 2. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They didn't understand what this meant, and most of you have been Christians for years and still don't understand what it means. They had been singing every year this Hallel, including these words. The Lord's done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Old Testament speaks over and over and over about this king that they were waiting to come in and conquer being rejected by the very builders of the nation and then becoming a capstone on the building. What what is a capstone? It's that thing that's waiting till the very last to crown the accomplishment. But see, kind of like, I can tell my little boy, Gabe, especially Gabe, not so much Judah, but especially Gabe. Gabe, I need you to wash your hands, put on your shoes, and then you get a cookie. What do you think Gabe heard? I get a cookie. You could read this, you could sing these songs, and it speak about rejection of this beautiful capstone. It speak about being entangled in the cords of death and being drawn out. It would speak about a suffering Messiah before a victorious Messiah. But what would you hear? 
you would hear about the king who's going to liberate you. Not understanding what was in the middle. And it's understandable. You shouldn't look at the Jewish nation as if they were stupid. As if if you had been there, it would have been different. The Bible describes us as blind fools wandering about that were like cripples and invalids that God sent invitations to because His children didn't answer. And we've accepted. That's how the Bible speaks about us. Gentiles. People who didn't know about God and were found by Him. These people, it was prepared for. And they missed it. And because they missed it, you have a shot. On the triumphal entry, people usually think about, wow, they thronged to Jesus. And then those nasty Jews in just a few days turned their back on Jesus. This puts it in a little different light though, doesn't it? Here we got Hosanna again. Verse 24. The Lord, this is the day of the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You've sang that song all your life, haven't you? Do you know David wrote it in 1000 B.C.? O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Yeah, we'll skip over all that rejection. Just give us success, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and He has made His light to shine upon us. Remember that this psalm talks about light. Okay, we've got five more minutes. Y'all hang in there with me. Talks about light. With bows in hand, join in the festival procession. You got a footnote here? Bind the festival sacrifice with ropes and take it up to the horns of the altar. What do you think he's talking about? We're singing the Hallel. We're coming up on the Passover and we're singing about the capstone being rejected. And it's marvelous. It's beautiful in our eyes. We're singing about the cords of death entangling someone and the Lord delivering them out. And suddenly we're singing about binding a sacrifice with ropes to the horns of the altar. They thought they were talking about a lamb because it was the Passover season. But we can see what it was, can't you? But if you were a Jew, would you have wanted that? Would you want a 2,000 year stumbling period? Gentiles who did nothing to deserve God, who did nothing to carry on the name of God, were saved? Probably not. They thought of Gentiles like dogs. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good and His love endures forever. Turn back with me real quick to John. We're going to finish John 12. And hopefully I can tie some of this back together. Do you remember that it talked about the light of the Lord shining upon them? Jesus knew that they didn't understand the very songs that they were singing about Him. The words that they were quoting to Him came right out of this song. Blessed is the King of Israel. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. He knew they didn't understand it, and so He was referring back to it here. You remember they asked about the Christ remaining forever? Verse 35, Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of the light. Why should they have understood that? Because that same song that talked about his rejection, being wrapped in the cords of death and being delivered out, the same one that they were clinging to the parts of the victorious conquering king, talked about God shining His light upon them. And He said, I'm that light. It's about the third time in John He's done that too. And you need to walk in this revelation while I'm the life and I'm here. When Jesus had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid Himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. By the way, who's the they here? We established that the nation of Israel said, God is great and His love endures forever. We established that God-fearing Jews did. Our Greeks. This is the house of Aaron. When John talks about the rejection, he's talking about the house of Aaron. The leadership. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about Him. Yet at the same time, many among the leaders believed in Him, but... Because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise from men more than the praise 
from God. Boy, you could look at them and say, those Jewish leaders, how bad they were. My God, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet they still didn't believe and turn to Him. Now, some of them believed, but they were just like Christians today. They were more scared of what people would think. They were more scared of the reaction of their friends and family and the social consequences than they were of wanting to praise God. No different than today. This is why most of America claims to be a Christian and lives like hell all week. This is why everybody you meet says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian and Jesus is wonderful. But there's nothing else in their life that shows the love of the Lord. Because if they really do act like Jesus, they're worried not about being put out of a synagogue, but their friends and family thinking they're weird. They're nuts. I decided a long time ago that it was okay. And God willing, some of my family is coming in anyway. We'll read these last little words and we're going to close. We've got three minutes. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in Me, he does not believe in Me only, but in the One who sent Me. You remember John 1.18? John 1.18, it was a message I taught about Jesus came to reveal the Father. He, he was at the Father's side. He was the one and only. And He had come to make the Father known. Jesus is again restating His mission. I'm here so that you'll know about the Father and who He is. When He looks at Me, He sees the One who sent Me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in Me should stay in darkness. Another quote from John 1, restating it. As for the person who hears My words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects Me and does not accept My words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that His commands leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. But what does all this mean to you? Am I really just trying to give you a cultural lesson on Israel? Not at all. They missed because they had in their mind what they wanted God to do. They forced the Scripture into their conception of what God would do. Many times we're guilty of the exact same thing. You turn on the TV, people want to be rich. So they find in the Scripture verses that seem to talk about God blessing you and they make the Word say that. People want to avoid persecution. So they write books about God will snatch them out of persecution. They want somebody else to suffer besides them. So they replace Israel with the church. And I say they, 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 and I really could say we, we, we. We need to be very careful. You need to set your whole life on this principle. Whatever this book says is what you'll live by. And although you may have thought about God a certain way, you may have been taught about God a certain way, you may have been raised in a denomination or a religion that taught certain things about God, this book and this book alone is what you will raise up as the standard that you'll live by. Because even the people that were given this Word failed to do that at times and it cost the nation greatly. 2,000 years of destruction it cost. Jesus only said and did what the Father told Him to. He was a perfect reflection of the Father. You want to know how you should live, what's pleasing to God? We learn it from watching Jesus' life. We're also going to embrace Jewish culture in here. We're not going to become Jews. I won't be wearing a kippah, won't have on phylacteries or teflon, uh, and I would love to learn to play so far, but probably will never learn how. We'll pretty much be Jews with Gentile or Gentiles with Jewish toys, but at the same time, we need to learn about our Hebraic roots so that we don't miss the promises of God. We need to show a proper understanding and respect for those that have gone before us and paved the way. When you think about it, can you imagine waiting? Centuries and centuries and centuries for this to happen? All you've ever heard about Jesus is He's came to save you. What if you were still waiting to hear about the guy who would come to save? All you've ever heard is that God loves you, will forgive your sin and meet you right where you are. What if you were still waiting for that figure to be revealed? If you were still carrying sacrifices and under a heavy yoke of condemnation, knowing that the blood of bulls and goats would never wipe away your sin? See, I'm comforted. Whatever happened yesterday can be washed away today. That didn't give me an excuse to sin. It gives me an excuse to live a righteous life is what it does. But what if 
What I did, they had to be paid for with some livestock today. Can you imagine that? What a heavy price they carried so that you could learn about God. That'd give you a whole new love and admiration, won't it? And if the people this was prepared for missed the message, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because it wasn't designed for us. How much more do you think we might miss the message? That's why you can go pick up books on every topic on eschatology today and hear some people say Jesus came in A.D. 70. Others say, no, He's coming in 1999. Oops, that's already passed. He's coming in 2002. Oops, that's already passed. You can hear people quote Nostradamus about an asteroid hitting the earth. You can hear every crazy thing. We're Gentiles who are trying to work out Jewish Scriptures without the tether, without being attached to Judaism. I am convinced at this point that the answers to the book of Revelation lie within the Jewish culture. I'm convinced of that. So we're going to begin to study that. Y'all stand up and let's pray.